thought I would just take this opportunity just ever so briefly um, to just remind us that uh, tomorrow is actually Reformation Day. Amen? October 31st, 1517 was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door, All Saints Church in Wittenberg, what was what is now Germany, disputing the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church. It, it is what lit off the, the powder keg that became the firestorm of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And out of that Reformation, we will oftentimes focus on what we call the five solas of the Reformation. It was great because one of our songs had one of those Solas. We'll get to that in just a minute. Sola means alone. And the five are this. Number one, sola fide. What's that? Faith alone. Faith alone. We are saved solely through the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, and this was the one from our song, we have solas Christus, Christ alone. God has given the ultimate revelation of himself to us by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only through God's gracious self-revelation in Jesus do we come to a saving and transforming knowledge of God. Sola gratia, grace alone. The biblical teaching that salvation is by God's grace through faith alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. The scriptures are the ultimate and trustworthy authority for life and godliness, faith and the practicing of that faith. And lastly, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Glory belongs to God alone. Alone, God's glory is the central motivation for salvation. It's not about just improving our lives, though that is a wonderful byproduct of our salvation, isn't it? God is not a means to an end. He is the means and the end. The goal of all life is to give glory to God alone. Whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, say it with me. Do all to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those that went before us, people like Martin Luther and others, who, Lord, stood against a formidable foe to proclaim these truths, these solas of the Reformation. May they not ever be lost on us. And what people went through to protect those biblical truths. Lord, now as we come to our time in the word. Oh Lord, be good to us. Help us to understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to to contemplate, to meditate on, to think deeply about your word. And as always, Father, how to apply it to our lives and to apply it to the life of this church. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 
please turn to 2 Thessalonians, and while you're doing so, please also stand for the reading of the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, excuse me, we will just be focusing on two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul starts to wrap up his letter by saying this, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. This is the word of God. You may be seated. It's going to be fun next week because the ladies will get a double dose of peace because I saw on their um, coming up uh, women's gathering, the subject is peace, and that is exactly will be our subject as we conclude Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Here in Los Angeles, you you might actually hear someone say, well, I'm not a doctor, but I played one on TV. And as I thought about that phrase, I thought, you know, I don't ever think I've played a doctor. Uh, I was on ER one time, but I played a guy in a car accident. So, you know, I needed a doctor. Uh, So know this, that my medical knowledge is limited when I share what I'm going to share with you. But imagine you cut yourself and you, you know, um, did nothing really to clean out the wound. You did nothing to help it heal. You, you got the bleeding stopped or kind of finally stopped on its own. But unfortunately, there was some really, really gnarly bacteria. Something like Staphylococcus aureus or Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Or Clostridium perfringens, or, ooh, here's the real bad one, Acinetobacter baumani haemolyticus. I'm sure I butchered those names, so we'll ask one of our nurses afterwards. But you think something with that kind of a name, it's got to be bad, right? Anyway, because of this crazy bacteria that got into your wound, now your cut gets infected. But you don't have time for this. You have a busy life, so you just kind of hope that it's going to get better on its own. But the next thing you know, you start to develop other symptoms, things like warm skin around the wound and yellow or green pus coming from the wound. Red streaks start to appear on the skin around the wound. And, And next thing you know, you're developing a fever and chills and aches and pains, nausea, even vomiting. But man, you are going to tough this out. No doctors for you. And unfortunately, things progress from bad to worse. And you now develop a form of gangrene that continues to spread to other tissues and organs and limbs. And the next thing you know, even something has to be amputated. And if that wasn't bad enough, sepsis sets in. Now, I know this is kind of an over-the-top illustration, but... Yet it's absolutely true when, that when something like a simple cut becomes infected, if left untreated, the problem will spread. And it'll start affecting other parts of the body. And in some cases could actually lead to death. 
The title of this message is what to do with a disobedient brother. The implication being that if nothing is done, things will only get worse and could even start spreading throughout the body, even the body of Christ. So as Paul wraps up this second letter to the church at Thessalonica, he has addressed what to do about those, for instance, living unruly, undisciplined lives, especially in the area of work and acting like busybodies, giving the appearance of work, but not really working at all. These people are posers, Using he he and uh, Sylvanus and Timothy as examples, he has exhorted them to work hard and to do so in a quiet fashion so as not to be a burden to anyone. And furthermore, he explained that if an able person refuses to work, then they shouldn't be fed by others. And then lastly, he gave the encouragement for us to, to not grow weary while doing good. Because even believers can have those occasions or those situations or circumstances that might cause us to start to grow weary in our doing of good. Now before he signs off, here he addresses one other issue that he saw as being important for the life of the church. And that is again what to do about a disobedient brother or sister, meaning somebody inside the church. And to this end, Paul gives us in this text four commands as to what to be done with this person. And we'll get into some of the reasons why as well. The first is this. We need to clearly identify a brother or sister's sin, if it be there. Do clearly identify the sin. Look back at verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction, the word there is literally word. If anyone doesn't obey our word in this letter, take special note of that person. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, it's interesting because there's actually not a, a lot of commands to obey. So it's likely that the immediate context of this unruly undisciplined person that we just kind of talked about the last few weeks in the area of work is who paul has in mind but what he says is also true of any believer who doesn't obey his instructions in this letter or in any other and let us just be reminded for a moment that any of these instructions in other places of scripture constitute the word of god So in other words, it's not just Paul and Peter or John or some other apostles instructions that are being disobeyed, but it is the very word of God. Indeed, it is God himself who is being disobeyed. Now, in any case, Paul says here, take special note of this person who is acting disobediently in this phrase take special note it's one word in the greek simply meaning to sign mark or note something for a certain purpose in other words identify the sin and and mark this person out for some kind of specific attention now here's something to consider though we as believers are forgiven of all of our sins Past, present, future. Does that mean we're now sinless? No. No, not exactly. While we who have been crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, Romans 6, 6, and therefore 
We are now freed from our sins, Romans 6, 7, and have become slaves of righteousness, Romans 6, 18, and who are enslaved to God, verse 22. Unfortunately, we do still sin, don't we? And this is why we are... We are told by John in 1 John 1, 9 and 10, if we confess our sins. Remember, this is being written to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, most of us as believers, we sin daily. Sometimes hourly, minute by minute, oh, second by second. And I would also say that, that probably the majority of these sins are what we might call sins of the heart. They are not those, or necessarily those kinds of sins that have a, an immediate outward manifestation that can, say, be witnessed by others. Sins like lust or Anger, greed, covetousness, idolatry. These are all first and foremost sins of the heart. But yes, they also can have an eventual outward manifestation. Things like unwholesome words, lying, stealing, immorality, physical violence are all outwardly manifested for all to hear and see. And we might say are, are in that sense much easier to identify. In other words, a married person can lust, even committing adultery in their heart, or they can actually commit physical adultery. So what are we to do? What, I mean, are, are we to try and police the sins of every believer's heart? I'll tell you what, come on over to my heart. It's going to be a full-time job for you. You won't have time to get to anybody else. Are we looking to looking for any sign of outward sin from our brothers and sisters, you know, making notes in our sin police log of one another and so we can run up to them and wag our finger at their face and call them out of their sin before they've even had a chance to repent? No. No, not exactly. And part of the reason is because of what we understand about this phrase in our text, if anyone does not obey our instruction because here paul uses a present active verb i tell you these things when they're important for you to know when they have a bearing on our text because this means that the disobedience is an ongoing habitual sin we all sin the question is is what do we do about our sin i mean are we quick to confess and repent like we see in 1 John. Make things right with the Lord. Make things right with others. Well, then nothing needs to be said. It's done. It's over. Case closed. Praise the Lord for that. It's these outwardly manifested, ongoing, habitual sins that Paul would have us take note or take special note of that person. And, and why would that be? Well, that's, that's Paul's next admonition. That we're not to associate with them. Verse 14 says, and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Again, remember, we're talking about those inside the church, those that are professing believers. Now, this word associate literally means to mix together. 
to mingle, to keep company with or have fellowship with. And we just heard this from Paul back in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, when he commanded us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to, quote, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And we learned that this was for the purpose of, well, one, not enabling somebody to just kind of, you know, mooch off others. These were those that didn't want to work. As well as understanding, too, from the scripture that bad company corrupts good morals. You put yourself in harm's way of falling into the same sin if you maintain your, your close relationship with them without calling them to repentance. That's the key. This is that spreading of the infection that we talked about at the beginning. If left untreated, an infection can spread and cause worse damage to the body, both physically and figuratively speaking. <clears throat> turn in your Bibles, keep your, your bookmark there at 2 Thessalonians, and, and turn backwards to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I read part of this passage two weeks ago. It just bears reading again, but this time we'll make a few comments on it as we go. Remember, Paul's writing to the church, the church at Corinth as a whole. And man, they had some issues. They had some problems. He says this in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty hardcore, right, in the church? That someone has his father's wife. Just pause there for a moment. The sin has been identified. Immorality in a general sense, but adultery and incest more specifically. And the person has been taken note of. Verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Let me just give you some parentheses here. In other words, he's saying you haven't done anything about it. You've done zero about it. Be removed from your midst. It means to have no association with them. We're continuing in verse 3. He says, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's pause here again for a minute or two. Paul is not physically present with them, but he says that he is with them spiritually speaking and has pronounced an authoritative binding consequence for this professing believer in sin that in some sense he will, under the power of Satan, greatly physically suffer, possibly even to death. So that he will not be able to continue to infect the church. And also by doing this, if he turns out to be an unbeliever, then Paul's point is that his spirit will have a much better opportunity of being saved because of this discipline. Meaning the discipline and the consequences for sin are designed to move someone 
to repentance. That's the point. Paul continues. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leaven being yeast, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. So us, as the church, we are to be like unleavened bread. And that's good, right? Because the yeast actually signifies sin. God wants us to keep it that way by getting rid of any yeast, ongoing habitual sin that might crop up and start to leaven or or release to or infect the whole lump of dough, which means affecting the whole church. And how much yeast is it that you need to leaven a whole loaf of bread? Not much. Julie's kind of our bread maker in our family. And before she started doing things from scratch, I would do the bread machine. We got a bread machine, I think, for our wedding, you know. And uh, and so uh, so I would I would uh, you start by putting this little yeast packet in. It's like just just a tiny bit. And then you put in all the other ingredients and that little tiny bit causes the whole loaf to rise and become leavened. It doesn't take much. Continuing on, verse 7, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Verse 8, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Using the imagery of the Passover feast, friends, and Christ is our Passover lamb, our sacrifice for sins, we are encouraged to leave behind the old sinful ways and things like malice and and wickedness in favor of that which is new. Ushered in by Christ, things like sincerity and truth. Paul continues in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Parentheses, now he offers a clarification. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Another set of parentheses for for you. He's talking about outside the church when he says this world. Continuing, or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. Parentheses here, God doesn't want his church completely isolated from the world. We have to be in the world, friends, if we are going to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. In other words, a professing believer. We, we put that in there in that sense that he says so called brother but because of their ongoing habitual sin it it could be that this person is a poser someone who thinks they are uh, a believer and really isn't or someone who knows they're not but trying to act like they are he picks up with any so-called brother if he is in sin excuse me if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. We saw this again in the last couple of weeks. Because having a meal back then with someone showed acceptance. It showed fellowship with them. 
We would say pretty much the same today in the realm of our Christian circles. Here we see that that separation, which should put him to shame, causing him or her to rethink things as they are excluded from the fellowship that they have once enjoyed. That's purpose and reason for this. Picking up in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And I mentioned before, the implied answer there is, yeah, nothing. We, We don't. We're not to judge outsiders. He says, do you not judge those who are within the church? The implied answer being, yes, of course we do. That is who we are to judge. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now here Paul quotes from Deuteronomy. And this is in line with what he wrote in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, when he says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And we, we should note here as well that this is actually what we call the third step when we refer to church discipline. Looking to the Matthew 18 process, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. We see the same thing in our text with this admonition to not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Again, that is actually step three of four possible steps according to Matthew 18. But before we get there, what is this word for shame about? It literally means to bring to reflection and therefore to effect. To bring to reflection and therefore to affect. Titus 2 and verse 8 speaks of a Christian's godly treatment of an opponent so that they will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. It's also used in the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, 32, where the prophet writes, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God, let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. It was the house of Israel that was being put to shame. And like Israel, our text of verse 14 and putting them to shame is for the purpose of repentance. That again is the point. And I know we live in a society that tells us that all shame is bad. That's bad. You shouldn't feel shame or feel shameful or be ashamed. Nobody should be put to shame, made to feel shameful. It's, it's, it's bad for somebody's self-esteem. Oh, don't get me going on that because secular psychology loves to tell us that you're not, we're not sinners. Nobody's a sinner. We just suffer from low self-esteem and misplaced shame. Now, granted, some shame is misplaced. Some shame is not warranted. You know, for instance, something might have happened to someone that's out of their control, but they feel shame over it. Maybe they feel shame because, you know, they don't have a lot of money or they can't keep up with the Joneses or or whatever it is. And, And these would be instances of misplaced or unwarranted shame. But there is a kind of shame, friends, that is positive. Because it is indeed biblical. It's biblical in nature. John Wesley once said, Be ashamed of nothing but sin. 
not of fetching of wood or drawing water, if time permit, not of cleaning your own shoes or your neighbor's. In other words, there's nothing in any of that to be ashamed of. Be ashamed of your sin. Because shame due to sin is what the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of the wrongfulness of sin. We should feel shameful when we have sinned. We should reflect on on what we have done and how it affects us. Or how it affects even others. You know, we sometimes will say to somebody, shame on you. And hopefully, when we do, it's in regard to their sin, and hopefully it's from a a loving place of wanting to show them their sin. Sometimes I might say in front of my family, well, shame on me if I have sinned against God or I have sinned against them in some way. The idea of putting a sinning brother or sister to shame by not associating with them is so that they will feel the sting of being separated for a time from their church family. And in their exile, one would hope and pray that the shame will be the catalyst that leads them to repentance and ultimately restoration. And that's what this is all about. Restoration in their relationship with God and restoration within their relationship with with each other. Sorry, God, (laughs) each other, right? That brings us to our third point. Paul's third point, his third admonition. Don't treat them like an enemy. Yes, they need to feel the shame of their sin, but we should not treat them like an enemy. Verse 15, yet do not regard him as an enemy. And remember the context again is the church and a sinning brother or sister, meaning a true believer or, excuse me, at least a professing believer. And that's why Paul refers to the sinning person in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 as a so-called brother because they're not doing anything that would really warrant uh, understanding that they are a true believer. In fact, just the opposite. Their deeds uh, that they are engaged in would more likely lead one to the conclusion that they're not a true believer. And yet we are to treat them as a brother or sister in Christ until proven otherwise. So what does it mean then to not treat them like an enemy with the exception of what we've seen from Paul and not associating with them? Again, we're still talking about step three of Matthew 18. They haven't been excommunicated in the sense that, you know, their membership hasn't been revoked at this point. They're they're not to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector or as an unbeliever at this point. This person, no matter what they did, is still seen and understood as a brother or sister in the Lord, albeit a sinning one. And there is no sin, friends, that they can't be restored from. And we have to guard ourselves from seeing them as some kind of adversary or treating them like an enemy because they haven't repented yet. Or maybe because of the grotesqueness that we think the sin is about or even the perverseness of the sin. Sometimes it can just be that yuck factor and then we just get all riled up and next thing you know we're treating them like an enemy. Paul, in the same way a father would feel towards his children, wanted the Corinthians to be sorrowful over their sin, to be properly punished, and yet also wanted them to know of the great love that he had for them. Just in the same way that we as earthly fathers or earthly mothers would 
would love and care for our children, even though we know that they must be disciplined. He says this in 2 Corinthians 2, 6 to 8, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, meaning the church. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one, referring to the sinning brother or sister, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. In reaffirming our love for them, it doesn't mean we go soft on the sin or that we go soft on the consequence. But we have to make sure there's still that, that loving them as a brother or sister, not treating them like an enemy. In Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted, right? It's that bad company corrupts good morals kind of thing. So we got to be careful of that. But we need to go and restore them and do so with a spirit of gentleness, not treating them like an adversary. Now, lastly, for our text back in Second Thessalonians, Paul's fourth admonition is this. Do admonish them. Do admonish them. Verse 15, he says, yet do not regard him as an enemy, <clears throat> but admonish him as a brother. And this is what the whole discipline restoration process is to be about. Admonishing them. Again, as a fellow believer, this is the opposite of treating them like an enemy because it is the most loving thing that you could ever do for a brother or sister in Christ, speaking truth to them, but doing so in love. Calling them out on their sin, yes, but with true compassion, true caring, true gentleness. The Greek word there for admonish is, is one some of you may have heard before if you know anything about biblical or nuthetic counseling. Nuthateo. It's a compound word. It means mind and to place. So to place on or in the mind, which is to say warn, exhort, admonish. We bring their sin before them and we call them to repentance and we do so by using the scripture as in 2 Timothy 4.2 which says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Or 2 Timothy 3.16 which points out for scripture is for reproof and correction. Now, <clears throat> this then would be an appropriate time for us to walk through Matthew 18. Mind you, we're just going along with the text. We're not disciplining anyone. There's no church discipline coming up at the end. Oh, they're going to ask us to stay. Thankfully, there's not. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. <laughs> but we have to talk about this process. We have to understand about this process. This process of admonishing and hopefully restoring a sinning brother or sister in their relationship with the Lord and with their church family. And that's what the text says, so that's what we're going to do, or that's what we've been doing. So let, let me just say that it's extremely important that we view this process appropriately, properly. It is not, I repeat, it is not about trying to kick someone out of the church. It's just not. 
It's a process of bringing someone to repentance, which means reconciliation. It's about restoring a brother or sister from their sinful ways, bringing them back into fellowship with God and back into fellowship with one another in the church. Amen to that? Never forget that. I I think it's unfortunate sometimes that we call it you know, the church discipline passage. Let's call it the church restoration passage. Amen? All right, Matthew 18. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Step one. Step one in this process. Yeah, I better turn there too. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus, Jesus himself says... If your brother sins, I'm going to give you some parentheses here. This is not meant to exclude women. So ladies, it's not like, oh, good. He's only talking to the guys. Well, after all, they're the ones that sin the most, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's not meant to exclude women. Brothers used here in a general term for all believers. So this is equal opportunity, uh, you know, sin situation. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now imagine if a friend of yours from church shares with you how he or she cheats on their taxes, reasoning that, well, the government takes more than their fair share. I'm just evening things out a bit. Here's what you don't do. You don't post on his Facebook page so that it all can see, telling that person that they have sinned against God and the government, you need to repent. You don't bring it up to the person at work in front of other colleagues. You don't bring it up to him at the table at the church potluck. What does the text say but show him or her his fault in private? At this point in the process, You are not trying to publicly shame them. That is not the point. In fact, you are to be discreet. You are to keep things quiet. You are not to gossip about it or, you know, with anyone else. You simply go to that person in private, private conversation, and talk to them about their sin. You explain what their sin is by showing them what the Bible says, right? In this case, you'd probably go to Romans 13, uh, you know, about submitting yourself to the governing authorities or, or even the situation of Jesus paying his taxes to the Roman government in Matthew 22. Now, going to the scripture is extremely important because they need to understand this. This just isn't your own morality that you are trying to impose on them. This is God's word that needs to be imposed on them. They need to understand that they are sinning by God's word because God's word is the standard that they have sinned against. They must realize and acknowledge that they have sinned against a holy, just God. The text then says, if he, we could say she, listens to you, you have won your brother. In other words, they they have seen the error of their ways and they agree that they have sinned and they repent. They turn away from that sin. They turn to God and they're going a different direction now. And guess what? The matter is done. Finished. Over. Your brother's restored. You don't have to say anything else about it to them or anyone else. Now, in this situation, we we might want to consider what would true repentance actually 
looked like? What, what would it consist of? Okay, there's that confession, right? To the Lord, uh, and maybe and to others of any of that sin. Confessing and repenting before God. In this case, it would be also to make things right with the government. I mean, does that mean then that in, in the case that I gave you, this person promises, oh, uh, I'm never going to do it again, and they just can kind of simply move on? Does it mean that they have to send a quick letter of apology to the IRS, you know, and now they're done with it? No. No, to the best of their abilities, they must make restitution by paying back everything the IRS would require for as long as they have been cheating. Only then has true repentance taken place, and only then can they be considered fully restored. There was a neat movie. I remember it was their first one. The Kendrick brothers are the ones that did Facing the Giants and Courageous. And their very first one was a fun one called Flywheel. And, uh, and in it, this, uh, the main character, Alex Kendrick, is a used car salesman. And he's been defrauding people. He's a professing believer, but not a true believer. And when he finally comes to faith, he realizes he has to, to the best of his ability, track down every person he cheated while selling them a used car and make things right with them. And that's what he seeks to do. We have our own version of that in the Bible, don't we? His name's Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He promised and paid back four times as much as he defrauded from anyone, that he defrauded anyone. Four times is what he came up with. Now, one last thing before we move on. Notice something else that verse 15 doesn't say. It doesn't say that if you know your brother or sister are sinning, that you are supposed to call the pastor or a pastor or the elders and tell them so that they can go talk to them. It doesn't say that, does it? Guess who gets to go to them first? You do. You do. That is who goes to them first. It's one of the biggest misunderstandings. Oh, I'm yeah, but uh, I don't want to make waves. I just want to keep the peace. You know, they're probably, they probably won't even listen to me, you know. And, and it's just, it's, ooh, it's out of my comfort zone. I just don't want to. Eh, wrong answer. Wrong answer, friends. Folks, if that's your attitude and you would refuse to go to them, then guess what? Now we've compounded the problem because now you're in sin for not being willing to go to them. You would be disobeying God's command for you. Church family, not only is the holiness of God at stake and his church here, but don't forget that as long as this person remains in sin, they are susceptible to to the Lord's discipline and falling into further sin, which they will also reap additional consequences friends again the most loving the most caring the most best thing you could do for them is to go and gently lovingly but firmly confront them on their sin go to them in love go with compassion and 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 a true caring heart but with also the resolve to call them to repentance let's see what what matthew eighteen sixteen tells us to do next Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, meaning he doesn't fully repent, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
Okay, so you've gone to this person, you've explained their sin to them, you've shown them from the scriptures, they either, they either don't agree with you or they, they refuse to, to own up to it or make things right. And in this case, believe you me, if the person sent the IRS an apology but no plan to pay back the money, the IRS is sure going to be reaching out to them, right? So if they don't repent, now you are to round up at least one or two other folks to take with you a second time. And these don't have to be folks who have also witnessed the sin. That's not so much the point here. The point is is that there needs to be two or three witnesses at this next meeting with the unrepentant sinner to confirm what takes place at that meeting. And this is for the good of all parties. They will be able to see if there is truth in the accusation of sin and what the reaction of the unrepentant sinner might be. At this point, it would be entirely appropriate, though not necessarily a have to, for the accuser to come to one of the elders or pastors and and share the situation with them. The elders would, of course, keep it confidential as one or two of them even maybe join the accuser as a witness or two at the next meeting with the unrepentant sinner. This is from Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, where it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, if the accuser is making a false accusations, then hopefully the elders will be witness to that. And if the person remains unrepentant, they will see that as well. And if they repent, they will all, the witnesses will witness that too. And the witnesses may also decide that, you know, there needs to be some further investigation. This isn't as clear cut as maybe we thought. And no, too, there's not a specific time frame in all this. It's not like this all necessarily takes place in a week. In fact, it could take weeks. It could take months. Again, the purpose and point of the second step is to seek the repentance and restoration of the sinning party. Let's move on to verse 17. This is step three. Step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Ecclesia, assembly. The church body. So the group of witnesses have made contact or they've tried to make contact with the sinning brother or sister. The facts have been confirmed and they still refuse to fully repent. So the matter is now brought before the local church body. And this too can take some time in this process. Now why would it come before the local church body? So that they can get all riled up and light our torches and get our pitchforks right and go get them? No, no, not exactly. Rather, is it to tar and feather them or gossip about them? Of course not. No, at this point, again, the assumption is still that they are a brother or sister. They are a member of the body of Christ. The reason for telling it to the church is so that the church body can now go to this person en masse and call them to repentance. Think about it. Think about it. If every member of the congregation would actually seek this person out, either in person or through letter or email or text or Facebook, maybe private messaging would be better on the Facebook side of things, whatever. But the point here is is to lovingly but firmly as a church body call that person to repentance. 
you know, dear so-and-so, we love you as a brother or sister in Christ, and we desire for you to repent of your sin so that you can be restored in your relationship with God and to this local body. Please don't put this off. We miss you. Your friend, so-and-so, or in Christ, so-and-so. And you might imagine what it would be like to get one of these kinds of letters from maybe even a couple or a few people. What if they got 50 of them? What if they got 100 of them? What if they got 200 of them? And in this, some people will repent after the first meeting with a caring brother or sister who calls them to repent. Some will repent after that second meeting with the two or three witnesses. But some will turn from their sin and return only after an outpouring from the whole congregation. Praise the Lord. That has happened here at Calvary Bible. We praise God for that. When a sinning brother or sister, it's told to the church, and then they eventually repent and they are restored And this is the way God has designed it for the church body. And along with this third step, we've also seen from other texts, such as 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and verse 14, again, about not associating with them in this third step. What tends to happen is if it's going to the church, it's highly unlikely that that person is actually going to be there, although that has happened here as well. But typically, they've, they've left at that point. But again, it doesn't mean that you can't have contact with them for the purpose of calling them to repentance. But it does mean that you don't just get together with them for, you know, a friendly luncheon or a dinner and you just kind of act like nothing's happening and it's just for fun fellowship. Never bringing up their sin. Now, what happens if after a period of time the local congregation has lovingly gone after this person seeking their repentance? But they still haven't repented. Look at the rest of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what does Jesus mean by mentioning these two kinds of people? What were these two kinds of people, spiritually speaking, back then? They were unbelievers. And they were even those that were ostracized by the Jews. These are now those who need to be removed from membership so that they do not negatively infect the rest of the congregation. So that they do not continue to drag the name of Christ through the mud. And at this point, they would then, yes, be treated as unbelievers who, in fact, need to be evangelized. Uh, We're running out of time. I had hoped that we would get to even verses 18 to 20. These are kind of those forgotten verses in this passage. It's all the same context. Well, we're going to we're going to hold off. We need to get to our church members and and uh, that will just be for another time. But no verses 18 to 20 are all still in this context of church discipline. But these are those four steps. So what are our takeaways this morning? Well, we've been talking about a true believer versus a professing believer. And of course, the true believer is one who has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ as their Savior. The Savior of what? Their sins. And it is that person who has come to that knowledge 
through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, maybe from reading the word of God or being told the word of God from somebody else, and they, they have come to that conclusion that they are indeed a sinner. They have sinned against a holy, perfect, righteous God. And their sin bears consequences. Their sin bears the consequence of death, physical death, yes, but also spiritual death, separated from God for all eternity, and yes, punished in a place called hell. And even the lake of fire. But God so loved the world. How many times have I said this one to you? You know this verse that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Believe in him meaning understand, know and trust with your heart. That Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. That he offered forgiveness. That he offered eternal life to you. By taking the punishment that you and I deserve when he went to that cross. Taking all of God's wrath and being shamed in that sense. Wrath that was meant for us, shame that was meant for us. He died in our place. And if we would believe these truths about Christ, we would be saved. Not only that he died, but that he went into the ground and three days later rose victoriously from the dead. The death conqueror. Death could not keep him down. And he gives proof to then of his deity that he is indeed God and that he indeed can offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life because of that resurrection. Hallelujah. What a savior. And of course, Christ himself said, repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news of himself. That, of course, would be my prayer for any of you that have yet to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that before you leave here today by just praying and and telling him you're sorry for your sins and you do believe in what he did to accomplish your forgiveness and eternal life. Next, when you encounter a brother or sister that you believe might be in unrepentant sin, then you go to them and you go to them out of love and you identify from the scripture the sin and you admonish them from the scripture. You call them to repent. And if they don't repent, or if they do repent, it's done. It's over. Hallelujah. If they don't repent, you go back to them with one or two others, calling them to repentance again. If they don't repent after that, you tell it to the church. And while this is taking place, you don't associate with them so they will feel that shame of their sin. This doesn't mean you don't still call them to repentance or or try to reach out to them or even, like I said, write a card or a letter or talk to them. But again, it's for the purpose of of seeing them restored and reconciled back with the Lord and with with people that they have um, sinned against. But we're not to treat them like the enemy in so doing. And if they still refuse to repent, Even after being told to the church, then they are to be put out of the church, treating them as a Gentile or a tax collector, definitely at that point an unbeliever, until they would hopefully repent and believe and be restored. Friends, I hope this is clear for you. I hope you see that this is a process designed by God himself for the purpose of, again, restoring a brother or sister in sin for for possibly bringing a professing brother or sister even to salvation. 
Maybe that's what God has in mind here. And for the purpose of keeping his church, Calvary Bible Church, pure and undefiled, holy and blameless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the the truths that we have come to understand or or maybe just the truths that have been bolstered up in us, things that we had previously known, but maybe were just even a little unclear. Lord, I know this can be a, a, a tough thing to kind of understand or digest or because um, it doesn't it sometimes sound very loving, but in reality, it is the most loving thing we can do. And Father, I pray for anyone here that needs to put Christ first in their life, that they need forgiveness of sins, that they would just pray that prayer of repentance, seeking the forgiveness of Christ through what he did on the cross in their behalf. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.